bless the word of God to our hearts and minds and lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going back to our series in the book of Luke. And particularly today is a focus on the the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist, or more importantly, that setting the stage for the public ministry of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ. And this is an incredibly important time as we study the Gospels and as we grow in our faith and understanding. The last time we saw John the Baptist, he was a baby in in Luke chapter 1, in his father's arms. You remember Zacharias held him and gave that incredible prophecy acknowledging that the time of the Messiah was here and acknowledging that his own son, when he looked upon him, would be the forerunner, the long-predicted, prophesied forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. He says, and you, child, prophet of the highest, he says, will go before the face of the Lord and prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. And the last verse of that chapter, chapter 1, says, So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts until the day of his manifestation to Israel. So 30 silent years go by from when John the Baptist was a baby until this time when he's finally manifested to Israel. Matthew tells us that he was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt, eating locusts and wild honey. He was certainly... Um, an unusual character. And now he is stepping center stage at the appointed time to begin his ministry. A little bit of historical background. The first Roman emperor was Augustus. That was the Roman emperor who gave the decree for people to return to their place of birth for tax purposes. Remember, Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem because of that in Luke chapter 2. He was succeeded by his stepson, Tiberius, who was the second emperor. And Luke opens chapter 3 with Luke the historian, with very careful details, opens by telling us, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. This was about 29 AD. It's important because it helps us place when the beginning of Jesus' public ministry began. It says... Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea. Again, another important context and time reference. Tells us the emperor and then mentions Pontius Pilate, uh, the same Pontius Pilate that three years later would be condemning the Lord uh, unto the cross. It says Herod being tetrarch, which means um, a governor over a particular region of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, etc. Um, and this Herod is the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one who had the babies killed in Matthew chapter 2 when Jesus was born. Now this is his son, Herod Antipas. Um, he is the ruler over the Galilee area. His brother Philip married Herodias, that was their half-sister under Herod, under a different mother. And Herod Antipas took Herodias as his wife from his brother, and John the Baptist will rebuke him for that, and that's why John the Baptist ends up in prison and eventually loses his life. This is that same Herod. Now, in in verse 2, it tells us, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, 
there's only ever room, really, for one high priest. So this is a very unusual reference. Caiaphas was the official high priest. He succeeded his father-in-law, Annas, who was, had a lot of power and authority among the Jews and was still recognized for that. So you may remember when Jesus ultimately goes through his mock trials, they first bring him to Annas, then to Caiaphas, then to Pilate, who then takes him to Herod, who brings him back to Pilate, and then he goes to the cross, etc. So that's the, all of these people, or many of these people mentioned in these opening verses, are involved in Jesus' trials three plus years later. So while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, and here is the point, at this particular moment, and Luke goes out of his way to timestamp it very carefully, very specifically, when the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness, came to or came upon him, a weighty word. The word here is rhema, a distinct, clear word or message for the time or for the hour. John the Baptist had been in the wilderness. He had been preparing. We don't know the details of that. But now the word of the Lord came upon him and he began to speak and preach and minister. Uh, this phrase, the word of the Lord came upon, or two, is an Old Testament phrase related to the prophets. We read it of Jeremiah and, and many others. The word of the Lord came unto him. John the Baptist is recognized to be the last in the order of the Old Testament prophets. And we read that phrase of him here. Now, let's take note that 400 silent years have gone by. Remember, between the two testaments, the last prophetic voice was Malachi. And then 400 years of silence, meaning there was no prophet raised up. The word of the Lord wasn't coming to anyone during those times. There were no prophets. No one was speaking uh, according to the word of the Lord in a prophetic sense. But now, this is the first prophet to speak after 400 silent years. And what does he have to say? But repent. Repent. After hundreds of years of silence, and now the prophetic silence is broken, and he begins to speak. And what is the message that is laid before men who have gone so astray from the ways and purposes of God? It is to repent. That's quite poignant, isn't it? In verse 3, And he went in all the region around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission or for the forgiveness of sins. We've been to that region just north of the Dead Sea as the Jordan right goes up to, to Galilee. And that was the region, John. People were gathered unto him and he was baptizing people. And it was a baptism unto repentance. This verse really sums up the ministry of John the Baptist. Forgiveness is offered. Forgiveness awaits. But repentance and a baptism unto repentance was the step of faith or the key that was expected. This wasn't just a ritual or a ceremony, but it demanded something. It wasn't just an outward observance of going under the water, but it demanded something of the heart that men would repent. There would be a turning in the heart. We read in Matthew 3, 5, it says in Jerusalem and all Judea, all the region 
all people went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Matthew says it a little bit different. Repentance or confessing of sin, an acknowledgement and a recognition uh, of needing forgiveness. And the act of baptism, of course, always picturing the end of the old and the beginning of something new, the burial of the old and the giving of something new. And the gospel and the rebirth we understand as Christians produces something new. We are made a new creation. There certainly should be a change in our life. If someone says, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a born-again Christian, and yet there's no change in their life, and they are still entertaining and enjoying the same sins that they were before they were a Christian, their salvation should certainly come under question. It's not an empty profession or even a water baptism or any of those things. It is the turning in the heart. It is the believing in Christ and the recognition of your need for a Savior as a sinner. Verse 4 as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. All three synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, recognize that at this moment, Isaiah 40, verse 3, was being fulfilled, that John the Baptist was the voice predicted 700 years before, that would be crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. But Luke alone goes on to quote some more verses from that same uh, prophet in verse 5, where it says, Every valley shall be filled, every mountain hill brought low, the crooked places be made straight, the rough ways smooth. And this is an important phrase, And all people shall see the salvation of the Lord. This is very characteristic of Luke addressing men and the needs of men and the need for a savior that all people shall see the salvation of the Lord. And Luke gives us the fullest account of what John the Baptist said. What was his message in verse 7? Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Brood of vipers, snakes in the desert that want to avoid the coming fire or judgment. Um, poisonous vipers of the wilderness. We saw a couple of those in India. That might not be the way you want to open a message. Thank you for coming this morning, you brood of vipers. But Matthew gives us some insight. He tells us in Matthew 3, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, etc. So particularly when he said that, he was addressing the Pharisees and the scribes who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, checking the hearts and the motives. Are you playing religious games? Is this an outward observance? Are you doing this to be seen by men or dear Pharisees? Scries, brood of vipers, uh, are you here truly to repent of your sins? Now you might say, gosh, John is a little harsh, isn't he? I'm not sure if I want John the Baptist to be my pastor. I'm not sure I want to sit under his past pastoring or his pulpit. And we are thankful for the sweet words of Jesus, we might say. 
But let's remember in Matthew 23 what Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees. I'll read to you some of the verses. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, neither do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And by the way, hypocrites, the Greek word means one who plays the part. It's the idea of being an actor. You learn your lines and you wear the garments and you step onto the stage, but it's not who you really are. You are acting. It's hypocrisy. Who you are on the outside is not the same as who you are on the inside. And that is what John the Baptist and Jesus all the way through his public ministry had most issue with. It wasn't with the common people and the sinners and the tax collectors, the people who clearly recognizes their need for forgiveness and grace. It was, for the, it was against the religious crowd. And we dare say that it would be the same today if Jesus would come now. The people we'd have most issue with are the religious leaders and the hypocrisy and those who are supposed to be representing God and yet are not. We could read this whole passage. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Now, he's addressing the scribes and Pharisees, but he's speaking to the multitudes as they're coming to be baptized. And it could be easy for us to you'd be there to say, oh, yeah, he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees. I'm okay. But may the Holy Spirit also convict us. For that pharisaical spirit can be so easily present in any one of us. And we could do good to hear who has an ear. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones. I'll just skip down to the last part, verse 33. Listen to this, Jesus speaking. Serpents, brood of vipers. Wait a minute, that's John's line. That's what John said. And Jesus says the same thing. How, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Do you think your outward observances and your religious facade and your hypocrisy that may get the applaud of men, you think that will cause you to escape judgment? But you are a sinner in need of a savior and in need of forgiveness. Both John and Jesus were deeply disturbed by the falsehood of those religious people and leaders. Verse 8, John says, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. In other words, be careful, Pharisees and scribes, what, you, what your confidence is in. Is it because you are a Jew, because you are a Pharisee, because you keep the law in some measure? You think that you are secure because of that? You must show genuine repentance and the fruit thereof. Words are easy. Words are cheap. 
Joel 2.13 says, rend not the garments, but rend the heart before God. It's always a heart issue, isn't it, with God? Sometimes people ask those questions. Well, what about this? Should I do this or should I do this? Is it okay to do this or not okay? And the answer so often is it's a heart issue. Let your heart be right with God and you walk according to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So he speaks about repentance. Repentance, the Greek word metanoia. It means to change one's mind or literally to think differently is the literal rendering of the word. It doesn't mean to change outwardly. And you say, wait a minute, repentance doesn't mean to change outwardly? No. Repentance means an inward turning of the heart. It certainly bears fruit outwardly. If there's true repentance, there will be a change and a turning on the outside. But the repentance is what happens in the heart of a man before God. I say that, I make that careful distinction, because many churches and people today teach or understand that repentance means a change of lifestyle, and you must change your lifestyle before you come to God. And I take issue with that. You come just as you are to God, in a moment of repentance and belief in Christ, and you're accepted just as you are, and the change is not something that you produce for God, but something that God affects in your life. The work of sanctification is not your work for God, but God's work in the yielded available vessel. But he asked for fruit that would come with repentance. Now, in Israel, trees that were fruitless were commonly cut down. And burned. And likewise, Jesus, sorry, John the Baptist here speaks to them, saying that God will judge Israel like a fruitless tree unless they repented and and would bear the fruits of repentance. This is in verse 9. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire or facing the judgment. And we know Israel, that particular generation of Israel, were judged for not accepting Jesus as the Messiah. This stinging message um, addresses... Uh, the heart. So the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? Okay, we hear the message, we see the need, we're ready to respond, we want to repent in our hearts, we want to be baptized to acknowledge that, what should we do? And now John lists some uh, examples of what would be the fruit of repentance. Okay, if there's really repentance, then this is how your life should be affected. In verse 11, he says, He who has two garments, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do the likewise. Again, something that would address the natural selfish heart of men. We know that the fruit of the Spirit is love. And love will bear its fruit in relationships. Again, this is a baptism unto repentance. Acknowledging error and acknowledging the need for forgiveness. Now, later in Luke, there's a couple of verses that will help us understand this a little bit. In Luke 7, 29, look with me. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. 
In other words, when they were baptized unto repentance, they were acknowledging that God's ways were right, that they were wrong, that they had issue, that they had sin. They needed to repent and find forgiveness. But the Pharisees and the experts of the law, or the scribes, rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Insightful. And Paul himself said he preached first to those in Damascus and then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. So again, you don't have to change your life to come to God. But when you come to God, your life certainly should change. You come just as you are and you believe and you turn in your heart and you recognize your need. Let's go back to Luke chapter 3, verse 12. Then, and the NIV says, even the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? Tax collectors, particularly in Luke, are always mentioned in the negative. These were the Jewish uh, men who would take money from their fellow Jews, pay the allotted price to the Romans, and keep the cream off the top for themselves. They were therefore hated and despised. It was tax collectors and sinners. Uh, or the other way around. They were considered the greatest of sinners, the, the tax collectors. Or in the King James, uh, they're called publicans. When I was a new Christian, I thought that meant people who owned pubs, but it doesn't mean that. It means tax collectors. So they said, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed to you. That will cut right to the heart, right to the core of their very uh, operation. And likewise, verse 14, the soldiers, even some of the Roman soldiers, it appears, were looking to respond. We don't know if they actually did get baptized. Some of them perhaps did. It seems as though they did. And what shall we do? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. So in a similar way, they were not to exploit their position. They had power over others. They would typically get get low wages. And it was, again, a systemic problem that they would use their power and authority to make up for that. There would be a different temptation and different roles. And we could think about our... our workplace, our operations, our uh, uh, relationships. And if we would say, to, what shall we do? And there would be an answer for us about what would check our hearts. It's almost like we don't need to necessarily even ask that question, but we just need to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our life. If we really want to walk in the light, God is faithful and clear. Verse 15. Now, as the people were in expectation, this means at this general time, there was an expectation that the Messiah was going to come. And they all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was Christ or not. There would be certainly something special and unique about John. He spoke with authority. There would have been an incredible anointing upon his life and his ministry. In John's Gospel, I'll read to you some insightful verses. Now, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews and the priests and the Levites sent from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed and said, I am not the Christ. 
And they said, are you Elijah? He said, no. Are you the prophet? He said, no. They said to him, who are you that we may give answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? Oh, I love this. And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make way the straight, the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And they said, why do you baptize if you are not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? And he said, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who is coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose, as a servant would do to, to wash the, the, the feet of another. He said, I'm not worthy to do that. What I love about John's response is that John pointed to the person of Christ. He was not looking to bolster his own reputation or his ministry or speak about what he was doing, but he pointed to Christ. He famously says in John 3.30, I must decrease and he must increase. And this is this would be the true servant of Christ in the same way, would not be looking to seek attention to himself, but pointing away from himself to Christ. 3.16. There's a lot we could say about that, but let's just move on. John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming. Notice the things he says about him. He's mightier than I, I am not worthy, and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat in his barn, and he will burn up the chaff with, the unqu with unquenchable fire. Speaking, John would say, I speak about judgment, but he actually is the judge. The main distinction, though, he makes is about the baptism. I baptize with water but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and of fire. Jesus said that of himself, Acts 1.5. He said, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and receive power. We read of that in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit descended and came and the, the tongues of fire that lay on each of them, when the Holy Spirit permanently indwelled the believers. 1 Corinthians 12.13, we have been baptized by the Holy Spirit into his body. And with many other exhortations, or in the NIV it says, he preached the good news to them. In other words, there's not only that element of sin and repentance, but then the good news of the kingdom that will come, the focus of the Messiah uh, uh, coming and the, and the fulfillment of the covenant. But Herod the Tetrarch being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother, Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he shut up John in prison. You can read Matthew and Mark's accounts to read that whole story about how Herodias' daughter danced for the king, and he said, I'll give you whatever you want. And the mother's counsel was, we want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And Herod reluctantly, because he knew what the people thought of John and even he himself in some measure, but he sent the executioner to the prison and brought back John the Baptist's head. Let's go back, uh, let, let's look at uh, the next verse 21. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also 
was baptized. And this is where we want to finish today because this event, this astounding, incredible moment is the inception of the public ministry of Christ when he is baptized. And while he prayed, Jesus, while Jesus prayed, the heaven was open. In John's account, it says, the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. Which is interesting because John, of course, was the older of the two. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. Is that 22, 21? Matthew's account tells us that Jesus came from Galilee to John. He came all the way from Galilee to Jordan, specifically to be anointed. And John said to him, wait a minute. A little bit like Peter and the washing of the feet. John says, wait a minute. I should be baptized by you. That makes sense. It's a baptism through repentance. You don't need to repent. You are not a sinner. Why would you be baptized? Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And he allowed him. And certainly, baptism is an act of identification also. And it helps us understand this, that Jesus was identifying. He was identifying with the need of men, that men were sinners and needed forgiveness. He was identifying with the message and the ministry of John, preparing the way for the Messiah. His ministry begins with identification and ultimately ends with identification on the cross. For he was without sin, yet he went to the cross and died for our sins. He was without sin, yet he was baptized uh, by John the Baptist. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came immediately up out of the water in Matthew 3. And behold, the heavens were opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove upon him. And suddenly a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We read of this also in Luke. In Luke's account, the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And the voice from heaven, You are my Son In you I am well pleased. This is an astounding moment where the heavens are open, where there's a revelation from heaven from the Father himself, this incredible declaration and announcement at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, first and foremost, identifying Jesus as his own son and giving the assurance of blessing upon his public ministry. The Father taking pleasure in the obedience of the Son and the presentation of the Son. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, just to close this morning, many in our age and in our culture, many in our age or culture speak about Jesus in different ways. He's maybe respected as a a good man or a prophet or a teacher or a religious leader. Certainly he was so much more than that. His profile is like none other. Yes, he was a prophet. He was a teacher. But here he is identified as the son of God. Him who is without sin. To qualify as the savior for all sinful men. In Budapest, where we used to live, up on the hill, there is this monument. I think it's called the 
the Garden of Philosophers or something like that. And you go there and there's these statues of different religious leaders or philosophers. There's uh, Confucius and Moses and Buddha and Francis of Assisi and uh, um, uh, some others that are listed there and Jesus. <laughs> and when you go there as a Christian, they're like in a circle as if they're somehow equal. <laughs> you just, in your heart, you go, oh, no, you can't put Jesus here. <laughs> You can't compare him to these, these men. He is incomparable. But he starts his public ministry when he's 30, which, by the way, was the age of a priest starting the priesthood for Jesus being our high priest. And this is our last verse today. And Jesus himself began his ministry at 30 years of age, being, as it was supposed, the son of Joseph. Now, that parentheses there, carefully guards the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. Right? You might ask the question, why did Luke put this genealogy here in chapter 3? And it's because right after this declaration that Jesus was the Son of God, Luke puts in his genealogy, which highlights the fact that, yes, he was the Son of God. He was supposed to be the Son of Joseph, but he wasn't biologically. But he was also the Son of Man. And his genealogy traces all the way back through David, through Abraham, to Adam. For Luke presenting him as the son of man, Matthew presenting him as the, as the son of David, John presenting him as the son of God. So there's a slight difference there. He gives this genealogy to show, yes, he's the son of God. He's also the son of man, qualifying in his sinless, uh, sinless body to be our saviour. So this is exciting. This marks the beginning of his public ministry. We'll pick it up next week. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time just to focus together. Open your word, to be students of your word, to, to learn uh, about you, your word, your ministry, your purposes. We pray you would help us, teach us, guide us, and apply these truths to our lives and our walk with you. We pray for any that are perhaps visiting or watching online today. You're not sure of your walk with the Lord. You need encouragement. You need a personal revival. You need a recommitment. Or if you're not sure of your salvation, you need to be saved. Or look to him in this moment. Say, Jesus, save me today. Speak to me today. Forgive me today. I turn in my heart. I look to you. And, and meet me personally, encourage me in the way. And we all seal this time now with a prayer of thanksgiving and, and ask you to uh, bless us this day, this moment, this day, this week, with our families, our friends, all we have ahead of us. Help us in our walk of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.